Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I am joined by licensed psychologist, speaker, and consultant, Ryan C. Warner. Uh, can I call you Dr. Warner? Oh, you just call me Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have Ryan here. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you uh, taking some time out. I'm sure you're very, very busy. I could see those degrees on the wall, and people with degrees are usually super busy. Um, <laughs> I but, appreciate uh, um so let's get right into it uh psychology what drew you to it so that's a long story how much time do you get i got all the time in the world baby okay so starting in high school i was really into sports you know i enjoyed playing basketball football ran track and i thought i always wanted to you know be a professional athlete you know uh, even though i wasn't really good at sports yeah. <laughs> um, because that's all i knew that's all i knew right i saw other black men who looked like me and they were professional athletes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but I knew that wasn't a realistic option for me. So I was like, hey, I should, maybe I should go to college and do something related to exercise or uh, physical training or something like that. Um, so I was thinking that I wanted to be a physical uh, therapist, okay? So I went to the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and I remember that the high school counselors in my life they told me that I probably would never get into that school. Um, they said my, my grades weren't that great. My SAT score, ACT score was very low. Um, so I really didn't have confidence in myself that I would get into that type of premier Big Ten school. But luckily, right. I was able to get in. And I remember it was my first semester. And I actually came in on academic probation. Uh, which is interesting because typically, you know, you do poor at school and then you get put, put on. <laughs> uh, but I failed a, a, a geography class or a math class, I think it was, or chemistry, one of those uh, in high school in my senior year. So they put me on academic probation, actually, my freshman year of, of college. I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's kind of scary, right? Like being yeah, academic sure. probation. And, you know, if you mess up, you know, you get kicked out, you know, and and my, my parents, they invested a lot of time and energy and, and support to help me get to, to, to that opportunity, right? So I didn't want to let them down. So I remember that I, I was undeclared and I really didn't know what I wanted to do, um, but I started to work as a physical therapist technician um, for a local physical therapy company. And I realized that I really enjoy interacting with other people. I really enjoy helping my patients rehabilitate and get back to full functioning. You know, people will come in and they would say, you know, I broke my leg, you know, I can't do things I used to enjoy, you know, and then they would tell me how that impacts them psychologically. They would tell me, hey, you know, based on the fact I can't play basketball anymore uh, or I can't, you know, run outside, then I feel kind of depressed, you know, and, and I don't really know how to release that energy. So yeah. I had no background about mental health. I really didn't know about what a psychologist does or the mental health field in general, but I realized that I was a good listener. And people would tell me, my patients would tell me, they would say, hey, Ryan, I really appreciate you talking to me. And even though you're helping me stretch, you know, and helping me, you know, lift these weights uh, and, and get back to physical, you know, the way I was physically, um, I really appreciate how you've been supporting me emotionally and psychologically. And cool. that really made me think about, hey, maybe I should get into the mental health field, you know, because I'm a good listener. I really enjoy talking to people. I really enjoy supporting people emotionally and psychologically. Um, so ultimately, I was able to stay in. Uh, I was able to get okay grades. So I'll, I'll get off of academic probation. And then I chose uh, community health as my major. Oh, okay. And 
Yeah, community health, I just knew in general I was interested in health. So I was like, hey, that seemed like a good route for me. <laughs> uh, so what I was able to- What is it like uh, study-wise, community health? Uh, so it wasn't super intense. I mean, it was a lot easier than some other majors. <laughs> so I was like, hey, let me go with the easiest thing, I think. <laughs> uh, but ultimately you learn like a population health standpoint. You understand, you know, uh, about how, you know, health and look at it multifacetedly, right? Um, so I was able to look at a, like a holistic approach to health uh, and it really opened my eyes up to, hey, health is not just physical, right? But it's emotional, psychological, spiritual, et cetera, right. you know? Uh, so when, when you start, do you miss PT at all? Uh, not really. It, it comes, it's a little repetitive. Yeah. So yeah, I like, yeah, I like yeah, yeah. different things. Yeah. Um, so, you know. You talk about your uh, str uh, struggles with school. Were you always like kind of not a great student? Were you like me where I was like a, a student till eighth grade and then I went to high school and I was like, I don't know what books are anymore. <laughs> so actually funny story, when I was in like first or second grade, uh, my teacher actually recommended to my mom that I be tested for special education. Uh, so she told my mom, hey, Ryan, he's struggling in school. He's having a hard time following directions and listening. And, and ultimately, you know, I'm concerned about his learning ability. Uh, however, funny story, I was one of the only few black students in the class. And if we look at the statistics, uh, black students, especially black males, uh, at a disproportionate rate get um, put in special education uh, compared to uh, the white, white individuals, right? Uh, so my mom, she was, a, she was a teacher and she knew about, you know, the, that systemic racism that happens in school. So she actually decided not to test me. Uh, and actually just helped me get more support outside of school, you know, put me in different tutoring classes, et cetera. So I was able after that, once I got those skills, I was able to do okay in school, pretty good, so. So uh, you go ahead and get your, you did um, undergrad at Illinois and then did you stay there for your master's? No, so right after my undergrad, I didn't know if I wanted to just jump into the work field, you know, or just keep going. So I was like, hey, let me just keep going. I was able to get a full ride a scholarship. Uh, they actually paid me to get my master's degree. Uh, and I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, another Big Ten, uh, predominantly white school. And <laughs> being at this school, you know, I was one of the only few black students in the class. You know, I looked around, I saw nobody looked like me. They're not playing um, football or basketball or, you know. Correct. Yeah. And everybody thought I was an athlete. You can't see how tall I'm at, I am, but I'm about six, three and a half. Now, if I was in the league, you know, that's just kind of short, you know, to, right, to play right. in the for league. The right? For the earth, that's tall. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You walk around the college campus over six, three, over six, two, people are going to think you're playing something. Yeah. Yeah. So people come up to me, hey, hey, Ryan, when's the next game? I'm like, I don't even watch, you know, college sports like that. So you know, is, uh, is it uh, a Illini or a Badger for you? Uh, a lion eye, yeah, a lion eye, just because I was there longer. Okay, all right. So if a lot, if uh, Illinois plays Wisconsin or anything, you're pulling for uh, Illinois. Yeah, I'm with Illinois. Yeah. When did you graduate? Uh, so when? Yeah. Uh, so I graduated my undergrad, uh, Illinois, in 2013. Then from 2013 to 15, I got my master's degree, uh, and I graduated 15 uh, from there. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, we had somebody uh, else on the show from Illinois. He played basketball there. His name is Brandon Paul. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he played hoops over there. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me, as a young psychologist, are you intimidated by patients at that time, or do you have enough training where it's kind of, 
I'm ready to go because I, I always want to ask what it's like in the beginning. Cause a lot of times you go and see, you know, a licensed therapist or um, psychologist. And, you know, a lot of times they're kind of older, depending on, you know, when you first go to the, your first psychologist, um, they, they're kind of seasoned veterans uh, in the psychology game. What was it like for you getting your start? Yeah. So that's interesting. Cause so my master's program, you know, that, that led up to my PhD program. So I was able to do a lot of uh, work in a lot of different settings as a master's student. And yeah, during that time, I mean, when I was a master's student, I was only yeah, 20, yeah, 23, 24 years old. Um, so people would look at me like, Hey, you know, what does this guy know? You know, um, what's this 23 year old kid going to tell me about my problems? Yeah, definitely. And then like with a fast forward, like when I graduated with my PhD, I graduated 27 years old. Um, so, you know, people would That's say, how, how's, this, hey, how's this dude have a doctorate degree, PhD, you know, 27, what does he know about life? You know, how can he tell me about my problems, right? Um, so yeah, I would experience some of that, you know, bias, uh, but ultimately as they, you know, get to know me, you know, they, they see how relaxed I am and see how, you know, just laid back and how helpful, like emotionally supportive I am, you know, then that, that stigma starts to subside and, you know, um, and I'm able to build that rapport, so. Very cool. Uh, another question I wanted to ask, uh, obviously you see all different types of people, I'm sure. Um, mental health has been something that's been getting a lot more awareness, uh, especially uh, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wanted to ask this question because um, a lot of people seem to have this idea that, you know, we as people who struggle, uh, I'm diagnosed by uh, bipolar type two. So a lot of us feel that, you know, we don't have control over a lot of our, uh, uh, whether it's our emotions, our relationships with our close ones. Um, how do you go about treating somebody who is obviously having a hard time in terms of not, not wanting to be stigmatized and then also lacking the treatment or the or the lack of drive for treatment because i I always want to add like so when i started therapy i started with cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, for me like a psychiatrist for me was like i didn't want to go and like talk about like you know what my mom did one time or like this thing with my dad i kind of wanted to learn these coping mechanisms uh for me to get better uh as the awareness grows a lot more people are obviously coming out and they say they struggle with anxiety, panic, you know, whatever it is. Can you just give us a very educated answer? Because uh, for me, lack thereof, uh, for you, the difference between mental health issues and mental health disorders. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So it's important to know that oftentimes we try to self-diagnose. Yes. We try to say, oh, I have ups and downs, so I have bipolar. Or I experience trauma, so I have PTSD, right? But it's important to know only a mental health, licensed mental health professional can actually diagnose an individual uh, with one of those conditions or any of those conditions. So that, that's important to know, number one. Um, number two, it's also important to note that um, we all experience challenges when it comes to mental health, right? We all have may experience anxiety before, maybe uh, feeling down, depressive thoughts, you know, racing thoughts you know, worry, pessimism, things like that. And that's normal, you know, it, it's normal, you know, as a human being, you know, as an emotional being to experience those type of feelings. But when it comes to a disorder, that's when it becomes functionally impactful, okay? Mm-hmm. So if I notice that, you know, I started to feel down every single day or, or most days to none, 
And I notice that impacts my occupational functioning. Maybe I'm doing uh, poor at work, you know, maybe, um, um, you know, uh, other people in my life, I'm not able to, you know, establish those relationships as easy as maybe I did in the past, or maybe I'm experiencing anger outbursts, et cetera. You know, when it starts to impact my functioning day to day, you know, my social functioning, my occupational functioning, uh, et cetera, then it can lead ultimately into a diagnosis. But it's important to to note that the purpose of a diagnosis is to guide treatment. It's not to label somebody. It's not to say, right. oh, you have, you're bipolar, you know. Um, is the purpose of this is to say, okay, hey, this is a challenge that you may struggle with. And we're gonna take what we know about that specific disorder based on evidence-based research, based on, you know, empirically driven data to ultimately guide the treatment. So you talk about CBT, right? CBT yeah. is helpful for a lot of conditions and disorders, right? Um, but if we don't have that diagnosis, it's hard to figure out what treatment to utilize. Um, and the, uh, the next thing I wanted to state is that, you know, um, with, with the rising awareness, a lot of things are just starting to get lumped together. So I think it's very important to actually distinguish the differences in, in what people struggle with. Um, you know, um, obviously anxiety and panic, you can't compare that to uh, uh, someone struggling with paranoid schizophrenia. You know, it's just a completely different kind of walk in the park in terms of what's going on chemically uh, in the human brain, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so you talk about the chemical Im impacts, right? So there's biological um, impacts uh, when it comes to different, those mental health challenges. There's psychological impacts, right? So different thoughts you may have um, and also the social impacts, right? So using that like biopsychosocial model is what a lot of mental health professionals may utilize. And ultimately, that has, helps guide treatment as well. You know, uh, so once again, I, I encourage the listeners to not try to diagnose yourself. But if you realize that, hey, I'm, I, whatever I'm dealing with, whether it be depression or anxiety, if it's starting to be impactful, then maybe I need to seek some professional support. Okay. Um, and then uh, the next question I have, uh, th this kind of has to deal with me. So uh, I know a guy, aka me. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of the times... As like I said, as the awareness rises, I feel that sometimes we're getting too much of a pass, like how you said, in terms of like relationships, people close to us. Um, you know, if we're if listen, for lack of better words, if I'm being a dick, right, to everyone around me, mm -hmm. because of what I'm struggling with, I understand that it adds to it, but there has to be a way that that stuff is either minimized or it doesn't come to the point where there's these boiling points. I feel that a lot of people are very like, oh, well, he struggles with this, so he can kind of get away with that. I have a very hard struggle with my mind in terms of a power struggle that I have like internally with how much of this is what I have and then how much of this is like my actual personality, how, where do they meet? Um, for people that are struggling, like you said, people, a lot of people diagnose themselves. We, as people who are, who struggle, we need to put in that work though, because the, the what we put out into the universe is very, very important. I don't want to say it's more important than others. Um, but the way that we can help get rid of these stigmas is try and uh, not police ourselves, but have a sense and a grasp on what it is is actually going on with our bodies. So what you said about uh, the, the socio model, the chemical model and the bio, uh, biological model, right? Yeah. Um, how, 
how important for you is it to kind of evolve your techniques as the awareness is rising? Can you elaborate more on that? Uh, just in terms of when you went to school, those books were published, you know, probably a few years ago. How often do you guys kind of refresh um, your professional, uh, obviously, not, not code of conduct, but like your professional kind of uh, yeah, the modalities that issue, we use. you know, yeah. like how books update, like, you know, um, in terms of how often is that turnover in terms of practices? Mm-hmm. It's important to know, like when you graduate with a PhD and become a psychologist, it's not like you're at the peak and like, you know, everything, like it's actually just the beginning, you know? Um, so what I often do is I, I try to read up on empirically uh, driven uh, research. I also conduct research as well. So I looked at myself as a as science practitioner. Um, and also I use their research that I conduct and the research that I read to guide my practice, right? So yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, a lot of the books that we read, a lot of the models, they may be outdated. So it's important to keep up to date you know, with the most uh, updated research and data uh, so you can best help the patients that you treat. Okay. And then uh, just to touch on the the question before, do you think that as the awareness goes up that we are, for lack of better words, enabling a little bit, or do you think that it's, it's kind of like a fine line that people are dealing with there? Mm-hmm. So when you say enabling, can you, can you elaborate more specifically? Um, just allowing, uh, you know, certain people to get away with, you know, outbursts or allowing, you know, allowing certain people to uh, miss social functions, um, allowing people to get away with certain things in our everyday life because of, oh, um, he has bipolar or uh, he struggles severely from panic disorder. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? In terms yeah. So, so it's important to know, yes, oftentimes we ostracize individuals diagnosed with mental health conditions and we say, oh, well, they're different than us and, you know, uh, they experience all these challenges so they can't understand. And that's often not the case, right? I mean, individuals can be diagnosed with uh, major depressive disorder, for instance, um, and, and still be able to use coping strategies, you yeah. know, to mitigate the impact, right? That's the point of therapy. That's the point of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and other modalities as well. You know, so... I think sometimes we, yeah, just maybe sometimes just get, try to give somebody a pass, but right. instead we should try to learn about the specific challenges that they are going through and help support them, right? Um, so when diagnosed with a, a specific mental health challenge or just experiencing mental health challenges in general, you know, it's important that, yeah, we can do certain things to improve our well-being, but also people around us who really care about us and love us, uh, if they're able to help us as well, support us, then, then we can ultimately improve our functioning you know, overall. So it's a, it's a group effort. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like a lot of people, uh, people close to you, they go through it with you too. Um, yep. you know, just from a, obviously a different, uh, set of eyes and a different standpoint, uh, to go back to earlier, you said that you found out you were a really good listener, but then you've become a public speaker. Hmm. So was that something that you were always comfortable doing? Did you, was that something that you, always kind of, uh, you know, magnetize yourself towards, like you felt like, were you outspoken as a kid? Were you outgoing as a kid? Or was this something that you kind of got a passion for later in life? Yeah, it was a, it's something I got a passion for just as recently, like I say in the last four years or so, four or five years. Uh, when I was a child- How long have you been doing it? 
Uh, so I've had my consulting company for one year and I've been public speaking. I guess I started during my PhD program. Um, so yeah, about four years or so. Yeah. Wow. wow. Um, now I'm going to talk about the stigmas of public speaking. You know, a lot, you know, it's uh, you see like, you know, uh, the Tony Robbins of the world and, you know, a lot of a lot of those you see the highest of the highs. Right. You see like those guys with their Netflix specials and all of this stuff. Um, how is it how competitive is that industry in terms of why should somebody want to book you instead of somebody else? Because in, in all in all professions, it, there's there's competitiveness. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are more naturally competitive. Some people aren't. Um, just so a two part question. How competitive is the guest speaker industry? And then also, what do you think sets you apart from, um, you know, other guest speakers? Yeah, great question. So so number one, I, that's a hard question to ask. I don't know. Um... I guess hard question to answer, just because I I wouldn't say I'm in in this game to be competitive to be like the best public speaker in the world. Ultimately, right. I joined public speaking to just spread my message. So you asked me uh, specifically, like, is this something I just grew into? Um, and I would definitely say yes, just because I realized one on one could be helpful with spreading knowledge and awareness to like patients and clients I see. But also seeing how when I started to get the opportunities to speak in larger crowds, how I can really help a lot of people just through my message. Right. So only a small amount of people are actually probably going to seek professional mental health uh, services. Right. Just based on the demand, uh, the limited availability, et cetera. Uh, but if I can spread my message in platforms like this, um, uh, news channels to the media and blog posts, then you never know who's watching, and who's listening. And they may say, oh, hey, that's a good technique and strategy. You know, so yeah, for the first question, it's hard to say how competitive it is, but I, there's millions and millions of organizations out there. Right? right. If you think about how many organizations in the world. And every organization can benefit from understanding about how to improve wellness among their employees, right, and their staff, how to enhance diversity, right? Um, so that that's my goal, is just to speak as many organizations as possible to spread my message. Awesome. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about as well is, can you uh, explain what consulting is on a professional level? Because I think a lot of people hear the word consultant and they honestly don't know what a consultant like actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, can you give me just a little bit of uh, what you do in terms of consulting, and how you would def- and how you would define professional consulting? Definitely. Um, so personally, I would define just simply uh, consulting as helping an organization or a team improve at a specific task and maximize their potential. You know that that's the way I look at uh, consulting. Um, and I know, uh, going back to the other question, you you indicated what, I guess, what, how do I stand apart, you know, from other yeah. public speakers and other consultants as well? And ultimately, I feel that my specific message, uh, I, I specifically focus on talking about microaggressions. Um, and that's like my specialty. My entire dissertation, uh, 200 plus pages was on microaggressions. Um, I personally experienced a lot of microaggressions in my life as well. Um, and just with my previous research, et cetera. You know, my passion for talking about that topic, uh, I think that niche, that's my niche. And that's really, really puts me apart, you know, from a lot of individuals, but also my ability to be a consultant and psychologist. So a psychologist, you know, I'm an expert of human behavior, right? Um, So when I go into organizations and they say, hey, we're having trouble, we experience a lot of racism um, in our organization, 
Or, you know, a lot of our employees say we're, they're depressed, you know, what do we do? So me being a psychologist brings another additional layer of expertise, you know, that I can stand apart. Right. Um, so. Um, question I always wanted to ask, and, uh, you know, I've speak to a lot, uh, to a lot of black professionals on this, on this show. And it's been very, it's been very enlightening. It's been very eye-opening. Um, can a white consultant teach about microaggressions? So let's first define microaggressions. Yes, let's, yes, let's do that. <laughs> so, so microaggressions are subtle, covert forms of discrimination aimed towards marginalized groups. Okay. Right. So microaggressions are not just racial. Okay. They could be gender microaggressions. Yes. Like for instance, when I go out to eat uh, with my wife uh, and um, if the waiter or the waitress always gives the bill to me. Okay. That could be seen as a microaggression, like, oh, do you think my wife can't pay for it? Do you think that me as a man, you know, I'm supposed to hold that responsibility, right? There's a lot of different layers to that. But um, it's important to know that microaggressions are, uh, the, the person who experiences a microaggression is able to label it as a microaggression or not. So you can't say, oh, no, I didn't commit that microaggression. That's not, that's not your right to say. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if you think about... Um, so gender microaggressions, you know, uh, microaggressions related on religious status, economic microaggressions, et cetera, right? So with that, yeah, individuals of all different racial ethnic backgrounds uh, can be able to teach on microaggressions. And if you're talking specifically about racial microaggressions, right, um, I think that it's important to have individuals of the uh, majority group to be able to engage in more diversity work and talk about this topic, right? Because oftentimes uh, you go into organizations and they, they look at who's the person of color and they say, hey, I need you. I don't know, you probably have no background about diversity, but you're a person of color, so I need you to help us improve our diversity in our department, right? Exactly. And that's not right, right? <laughs> so it's important to note that I think it's a group effort and <laughs> people of color can talk about their experience a little bit more when it comes to racial microaggressions, um, but also educating other individuals, uh, white individuals about it uh, so they can spread that message is also important. For sure. Um, obviously that's one of, uh, your big presentations is, uh, racial microaggressions. I wanted to ask you too, um, with education, especially early childhood, do you see going forward that microaggressions will be something a little bit possibly integrated into, uh, curriculums throughout kids in early childhood? Hmm. Um, just in terms of you know, everybody, obviously you got to learn the ABCs and you have to learn the math. And as they get older, you know, I'm talking like getting into middle school. Do you think that curriculums will change in terms, uh, you know, for lack of better words, with the times? I, I would hope so, you know, because yeah. we definitely need to update our curriculums, right? If you think back, you know, when you were elementary school, you learned like those basics and how often do you, I guess, review, you know, um, specific algebra, you know, and history, things like that. Like some in the history that they teach us, you know, are not, it's not the total history, you know, right. typically of, of, you know, our, our country, right? So I think number one, uh, we need to start emotional intelligence uh, in schools a little bit more. So they're yeah. starting to implement this now, you know, emotional intelligence is ultimately understanding how your emotions and your thoughts, you know, impact your behaviors. And when we're able to do that, then we're able to function better at school we're able to perform better, you know, we're able to establish better relationships, et cetera, right? So number one, emotional intelligence needs to be in schools, but also diversity work needs to be put in schools earlier, you know? So when it talk, 
when uh, we think when you think about the curriculum, you know, if we learn more about what are microaggressions, how do you cope with microaggressions as a child, then that could be helpful. Because I don't know about you, but throughout my entire life, you know, especially in predominantly white settings, I, I've experienced microaggressions. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I've talked. I've, yeah, <laughs> macros too. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I grew up. Uh, I'm from a, a mixed race background. My mother's Puerto Rican. My father's Italian. Um, I grew up in a town where I had 11 people in my grade. And um, there was a lot of white people and not many Hispanic people there. So we got called pretty much everything under the sun and then a lot of microaggressions as well. Yeah. Um, I always feel that like uh, the microaggressions hold a lot bigger, hold a lot more weight than like the name sounds. Um, can you tell me in terms of your presentation on micro uh, aggressions, what is the biggest point that you're trying to get across in terms of, you know, probably it's within an, an, an hour, your presentation? Um, yes, yeah, so I have a three-part series that I also do. Um, so uh, yeah, but a lot of my presentations are hours will. Yeah. So how do you try to hammer so much home in an hour and how difficult is that for you to do? Because, you know, like you said, um, a lot of people don't have um, kind of the resources to go in and, and get help or they don't know how, or maybe that's not for them. They feel more comfortable learning in a public setting. Um, how hard is it for you? Because like you said, you're, you were an athlete growing up. So you want to perform at your highest all the time. How do you, as the speaker, keep your energy and get your point across each and every time? Is it repetition? Is it is it uh, changing your own folk uh, in terms of uh, you know what you actually say? Is everything not the same? But do you adjust to the crowd? How does a guest speaker adapt in getting their message across within that one hour? Definitely change somebody's entire life. Yeah, so for the early part of your question, you know, it's important um, to understand the goal of this. Okay, so the goal of my presentations when I talk about microaggressions, when I go to small and large organizations, uh, I've, I've done this talk globally, different countries, et cetera. And the goal is to be able to help individuals realize number one, what it is. Number two, how does it impact individuals? And number three, what to do about it. Okay, um, so even though I've done this presentation many, many times, I always try to tailor it to the organization I speak to, okay? So for instance, if I'm talking to a thousand people on Zoom, you know, um, then it's gonna look a little bit different than if I just talked to 20, 30 uh, senior executive leaders, right? Um, And ultimately, based on the individuals and the organizational needs, I try to accomplish that um, by tailoring it to what they want out of the situation and, and what would success look like for them. So a lot of people say, especially after the George Floyd situation, oh, hey, we need diversity training. We need to talk about diversity training, right? After George Floyd died. Um, and obviously this b- police brutality happens, you know, um, has been happening for a long time, right? But once that situation happens, start opening individuals' eyes. So it's my job to not just go into organizations and so they can just check off their list. Oh, we had diversity training. But right. I strive to make, you know, systemic changes. So I give them tools and strategies in which they can change their policies uh, change the, the way that they engage with their employees and their staff so they can create more culturally inclusive environments, right? Because if we think about 99% of the population, where do we spend most of our time in our life? 
Uh, at work. We spend most of our life at work. And if we go to work and we it is not fulfilling, and if we experience racism or sexism, um, or we don't feel safe in our environment, then that takes a toll on our mental wellness, right? Um, so yeah, that's my goal. Physical too. I mean, uh, listen, I, I spend many days stress eating after work. Uh, you know what I mean? There's, there's a lot that goes into it. I always use the phrase, you end up taking your work home with you. Um, and that's tough. Um, but back to psychology, I always try to stress the importance of homework when it comes to mental health um, growth and uh, learning coping mechanisms. Can you just, in terms of your outlook on psychology, how important is homework for your patients, especially when they come to see you the next time? So it's important to know that for each individual that I see, I, I take a tailored approach. So like for instance, you're used to CBT and CBT is, is typically homework based, right? However, sometimes, you know, that may not be the best fit for some people, right? right? So you talk about earlier, like motivation and drive, like how to, how to keep people going you know, um, if they experience some, some significant mental health challenges, right? So that's why it's important to individualize treatment, right? So for some people who are goal-oriented, who say, yeah, you know, I need to better understand how my thoughts impact my emotions and my behaviors, then yeah, CBT is a good fit. Right. But maybe for other individuals, you know, um, they need to process a little bit differently, you know? So in that case, some people I see, I don't, I don't give them homework, right? And that's, and that's right. fine, you know? Um, so it, it's individualized uh, and based on that purpose experience. I always say this. I always ask this question too. Can you tell when a patient's lying to you? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think oftentimes I can just because as a listener, right. As a person right. who sees them over and over and over again, I can tell when their stories aren't matching up, you know, and also for the patients that I see, they also complete objective data, you know, subjective so data is like filling out screeners, like depression screeners or anxiety right. screeners. And oftentimes people are more truthful on those screeners than they are when I talk to them face to face. So I, I see things not matching up. I see, oh, hey, you indicated that uh, you have thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself. But then I just asked you and you say you don't. Right. So, so what's that about? Right. I got so the I paper to, right here. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, matching up the data is really important, um, but also just being a good listener and and seeing if they're consistent, you know, with their story, because oftentimes we if we. If, a person who lies over and over again is not able to keep up with their lie. And no, if someone's really that good, yeah, you'll figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, another question I had, a lot of people ask me personally, um, you know, just being a mental health advocate. Um, you know, I always tell people I, I'm not a mental health professional. I just try to have amazing stories and conversations with professionals, with non-professionals. Um, can you talk to them about how sometimes a psychologist just or therapist just isn't the right fit but that's also a very good sign that you know that at least there probably is someone out there that is going to fit your specific needs yeah yeah phenomenal question i, I think that when individuals go to therapy especially if they're new to therapy uh and it doesn't work out with one provider they say hey i'm not going back that was a horrible experience right However, it's important to know that some individuals may not be a good fit for you. You know, they may not have expertise in what you're trying to work on. Um, maybe you prefer a person of color and maybe they don't, don't identify with that, you know, or you prefer a specific gender, et cetera. 
So it's important to know, like, just like, you know, going shopping and trying to find that perfect fit for that shirt, you know, that it's going to be, it may take some time, right? You may have to try some things on uh, and it's okay if it doesn't fit. That doesn't mean you're never going to buy a shirt again, right? Yeah, You're going to go back to a different place and you're trying to maybe be more uh, specific, you know, with your needs. So that's a great question though. I think that a lot of people have a hard time. Uh, like you said, if, if you wanted to see a person of color as your therapist, see, I don't see that as a problem at, at all within like uh, the medical system. I think people should feel as comfortable as they can whenever it is, when it pertains to their health, as long as they're getting the proper, um, you know, uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you as well Um when you're with a patient for a long time, do you sense that not like they're your children, like you can release them back out into the world, you know what I mean? Without treatment, or do you kind of suggest that everyone's different? Like some people need treatment, I guess, for a little while, then they kind of can evolve a little bit. How young do you think and how long should somebody be, possibly seeing a psychologist or a therapist because i remember when i was a kid back in the day if you were 12 and went to see a therapist everybody thought you were fucking nuts yeah. you know what i mean it, it wasn't something that you really talked about or you know uh if your parents went to uh to counseling you know um people would with other parents i heard them scoff at that type of stuff um how early do you think that we should we start integrating possible uh one-on-one sessions with kids well, it was up to me. Uh, in a perfect world, everybody would have a therapist, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about the youngest, you know, you experience stress. So, you know, say, for instance, your parents divorced or maybe you only had one per- parent in the household or maybe you got bullied in school. You know, all of that is experiencing distress, right? Right. Um, so I don't think there's a perfect number like, oh, you need to be this old to seek therapy. Right. Uh, you know, I feel like everyone could benefit from having someone to you know, be able to hear their experience and help them think differently about certain situations. So that's really important because oftentimes there's a stigma with mental health, like you're going to lay on somebody's couch, they're going to just analyze you, right? But I, I look at, sometimes I tell my patients that I look, look at me like as a, as a coach, right? I'm coaching you through, right? So say for instance, you struggle with getting physically fit, you're probably going to seek out a physical trainer, right? Or you're probably going to watch a YouTube video, right? To improve yourself. And similar with physical health, our mental health must be exercised as well, okay? So oftentimes we think that if we just lay down and we wake up the next day, hopefully we'll feel better. But yeah, if we- I've tried that a bunch. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> think about our physical health, like we're not just gonna wake up and say, oh, hopefully tomorrow I'm stronger or hopefully tomorrow I can run faster, right? No, we have to be active and we have to do something. So I always push and say, hey, if you want to improve your mental wellness, you have to do something, right? You have to implement some different strategy. Um, so the earlier, the better, you know, so there's no perfect answer when it comes to, uh, no perfect age when it comes to that, that question. I hope, I hope um, you know, down, down the road when you and I are, are old men, uh, if God lets us get there, um, you know what I mean? Um, for you, I, I always see people that are that in any profession, you want to leave it better than it was when you got there. Right. Yeah. Um, for you. Are you still evolving in terms of being a better psychologist? Because a lot of people see like, Oh, you got a degree and you're a psychologist. I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying some people just aren't good at their jobs. 
you know, um, I feel a lot of times a lot of us who suffer, we, we blame ourselves a lot and whether it's not a right fit or maybe someone's just not particularly right at their jobs or, you know, a lot of people have skepticisms about you know, me uh, medication versus, you know, holistic. Um, do you think that, like, uh, I hope that in 20 years from now that mental health is just something that's integrated in school curriculums and it's okay to talk about and you know, it's a lot easier to access. And uh, what I was getting to is my main question is, um, in black communities, has there been a lead and a charge in all minority groups in terms of getting these people resources? Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, so there's two part question, three part yeah. question. Yes. <laughs> so for the first, I try to sneak them in because you know what I mean. It's like uh, I, I don't like cutting people off. When, I, when I'm asking like questions, because they come in my head and I got to ask them or I forget them. Yeah. So number one, if you're not striving to be better as a psychologist or just a health professional, then you should not be in the field. Yes. Right? You should always strive to get better. You should always strive to learn and keep up with the most up-to-date research so you can best help your patients. Right. Um, and then for your, the last part of your question, you indicated that, you know, are you, are you asking, is there been a push, you know, to, to mitigate the stigma in the black community? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. In terms of, you know, uh, uh, the government I'm talking about, like, um, in terms of, you know, um, you know, making health more available, especially when it comes to terms of mental health, because, you know, um, there, there's Medicaid, obviously, like there's stuff to help pe get people in doctor's offices, but not a lot of people know that that stuff can help you actually get into, uh, you know, a psychologist's office. The stigmas... Um, in, in black communities are still, I think, higher than they obviously are in white communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the stigma, but also the access, right? So Absolutely. we look at the systemic racism, right? We know that um, historically marginalized groups, you know, racial marginalized groups, you know, have, have less access. Um, they're, they're not afforded the, the same healthcare to compare to other groups, right? So, I mean, we may, we definitely probably seen a little progress in the last, I guess, 10, 20 years, but we have a long way to go. Yes. You know, I mean, you also in, in, indicate that there's this, this mental health stigma and that stigma, I don't have the perfect answer to, to try to help, you know, um, totally mitigate that. But I, I think that these platforms like this, you know, being able to talk about it, being able to um, get other people of color together to express, you know, their specific challenges and also get other health professionals to talk about what you can do um, to cope. You know, I think the more you do that, the more the stigma over time could be mitigated. You know, and um, social media, it's, it, it's a beautiful thing and a horrible thing at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a great place to spread awareness, but obviously it's like the mecca of bullying now. And uh, what, what people, you know, uh, bullying used to think was uh, something that happened when you were in uh, middle school, right? But now with social media, it's happening. People are bullying each other into their 50s and 60s now uh, at, at alarmingly high rates. I wanted to ask you, um, as social media has evolved, how has that changed your practice in terms of, you know, the frequency of, uh, you know, are you seeing higher, higher, uh, more people in psychologist's office? Um the dangers of social media and the positives of social media. Cause this is what we do. It's, it's integrated in our generation. It's just what it is like everything that's good. There's usually a bad side. 
But um, I wanted to see what your thoughts are in terms of how social media is affecting the future when it comes to mental health issues. Yeah, it could definitely be a gift and the curse, right? So let's first look at the positives, though. So the positive social media, we obviously can interact with each other and create that social network, you know, and, and maybe we feel kind of lonely. Maybe we feel like we don't have support. You know, people on social media can maybe support us in different yeah, ways. Sure. You know? um, so there's definitely a positive when it comes to that. We can network, you know. Um, I get this opportunity to meet you and engage with you, um, you know, through social media, right, and um, this virtual platform. Um, but oftentimes, you know, if we don't have confidence in ourselves, if we don't have a, a sense of self-esteem or we get negatively impacted by the words of others, which I feel like a lot of people, right, uh, right. and we and say we have a large following and we got a lot of hate and, you know, just just horrible uh, discriminatory type of messages, then that can wear a tear on our mental health and our mental well-being if we don't set up those boundaries, right? right. So it's important to know that uh, if we set up boundaries in our life, if we say, hey, for instance, I'm not going to look at my DMs for people I don't follow, right? right. Uh, or I'm going to mitigate my, my social media usage to just an hour per day, right? Uh, then that can be helpful as well. But also, if you look at the other side of social media, that now we're having additional platforms to help mitigate mental health stigma, yes. right? So like this type of platform, there's a lot of different websites out there and apps and things like that that can really be helpful for people um, to, to support them if they didn't have access, right? So it, it goes both sides, but uh, yeah, that's, those, those are my thoughts. Other thing, have you ever been close to quitting psychology? Just had a day where you're just like, I can't take this shit anymore. <laughs> uh, I have had days in which I'm like, man, I, I'm really beat right now. I need to take like three months off. Uh, but I've never had any thoughts about like quitting. Uh, just because I, when I go to work, it doesn't feel like work. You right. know, I'm really passionate about it. I mean, I would do it for free, you know, because helping other people like on an individual, you know, setting. Uh, I also run groups. But also getting my message out, like through outreach like this, you know, uh, through different media outlets, et cetera. Um, that's what I feel like my purpose in life is. Um, and that that pushes me uh, to continue to persevere even when things are hard. So it could definitely be hard to hear people's trauma and hear about people want to end their life and, you know, things like that. Right. Um, but I think that I, I go back to my why. Um, why am I here in this earth? Why? what is going to continue to, to motivate me? Uh, and I think that when I help people and they say, you know, Dr. Warner, you really helped save my life. I actually did not uh, end up taking my life because of our conversation. Like when people say things like that, that, that really makes me reflect back on my purpose. Yeah. Um, I always struggle with stuff um, like in terms of like social media, and some things are uh, can be re jobs can be rewardless at times. And I'm not talking about financial, but, um, you know, uh, we all have our struggles, whatever it is within our profession. I on and I truly I get message uh, messages like that from time to time. And I'm like, this is why I'm, I'm doing this. This is helping me uh, just as much as it is helping these other people. Um, but a psychologist, it's like I said before, a lot of people take work home with them. You obviously do, I'm sure, from time to time. Do you see somebody yourself? Yes, that's a great question. I do. Um, so, yeah, I just recently began uh, seeing someone just because I realized that, hey, it, sometimes when these things continue to pile up and I hear these horrific stories and then, you know, outside of my, my patient care, I do outreach and I have my consulting business and, right. you know, that's that's be kind of stressful, you know, so, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I see somebody to help me help me give me additional strategies as well. Just just because I just because you can help somebody else doesn't mean you can't seek help. You right. So it's right. important to know some people say, oh, I help my friends all the time. But that doesn't mean sometimes you need to help yourself first as well. So oh, you yeah. can't help oh, we all got problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? We all got stress. We all have problems. Um, so you said your, your mother was a teacher. What did she teach? Um, so she taught, she taught like all different type of cl- uh, grades from like first grade to all the way to eighth grade. Oh, so she had, she had a, a very long day at work. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and your father, what did he do? Uh, so he was a teacher and a principal as well. Okay, all right. So uh, they teacher, principal, and then just you and grades just didn't get along for a little while. <laughs> yeah. They must have been on your ass. Yeah, they were, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just a couple more questions. Uh, obviously, you're a really busy guy. Um, I wanted to ask two more questions on psychology and then one about you, if that's okay. Um, for people out there that are listening to this that want to become psychologists, do you have any tips or any uh, anecdotes that could possibly help them in terms of making the right decision uh, f- for um, their career and uh, also the right decision in terms of how to approach getting a degree in psychology? Like, obviously, it's you go to college and you do like the prereqs and you do all that stuff. But um, what would you recommend to uh, the youth um, that could be listening to this that are thinking about getting into psychology? Yeah. So I would say for me, my path wasn't, it wasn't a straight path. You know, I, I didn't really realize I wanted to be a psychologist until my, like my master's program. And then I, I realized that, oh, to be a psychologist, you have to have a doctorate degree, right. you know, so that's important to know. Um, but also I understand like the purpose of the why behind it, you know, because being a psychologist is not just therapy, you know, um, if you have a PhD specifically, you know, that's a research degree, you know, doctor of philosophy. Uh, so to be a science practitioner, you want to be passionate about research. Uh, if you did what, if you were interested in the PhD, that's number one. Uh, number two, think about like, you know, what is going to motivate you to get through, you know, um, but also continue, you know, to make change in people's lives as a psychologist, you know. So as I mentioned before, that that why um, that I hold, you know, is being able to give people tools and resources uh, to improve their lives and their well-being, but also to contribute to the literature, you know, through my research, uh, through outreach, uh, public speaking, you know, that, that's, that fuels me, that's my why. You know, so if you are interested in this, number, I think it's also important to seek mentorship. You know, um, there's so many different avenues that you can go as a psychologist, you know, um, and it's important to learn from those who you like to be like, uh, reach out to them. And when you have that strong mentorship, then that can make the path a little bit easier. Networking is uh, as important as the uh, degree these days, you would say, yeah, right? More important, yeah. <laughs> it's more important. Um, and I've heard you refer to it a couple times throughout the show. Can you explain uh, the importance of having a why? Yes. So having a why, I look at that, you know, as something that's going to fuel you and push you to do everything you do, you know? So why wake up? Why, why go to your, your job? You know, um, why you know, uh, talk about mental health, right? So that's gonna, that's gonna fuel everything you do. That's gonna fuel your behaviors, uh, especially when things get hard, okay? So you talk about, you know, um, different career avenues, no matter what you go into, you know, it could be some hard days of work, you know? Some days we may feel like get, giving up. Some days we may feel hopeless. We may feel that uh, we feel stagnant in life, you know? 
But if you're able to think about why am I doing this? Maybe I'm doing this to support my family. Maybe I'm doing this to be a good role model. Maybe I don't want to be um, like my family and I want to be better than them, right? Um, whatever that why is for you, that's going to fuel you to get through hard times. Um, and, and ultimately, when you have something to push you, you know, that, that path can a little bit be a little easier to get through those different uh, barriers and hurdles. So, uh, um, you know, I think that's a very important thing uh, to kind of have a base where you can come back and uh, even if it's time to just lick your wounds a little bit and uh, think about think about the why. Um, and the last question that I have uh, for you is I've, I have two. Where do you see yourself as a professional in the next five to 10 years? Where do you hope to be? Mm-hmm. So I hope to be a global uh, leader when it comes to talking about microaggressions and wellness, uh, specifically within historically marginalized populations. Um, currently, I've, I've, had, I've been blessed to be able to work in a lot of different countries and um, be able to, you know, different projects um, internationally and speak internationally. And I want to continue to enhance that platform. Uh, and I just want to help people as well. I want to improve their, their wellness. I want to help them be able to cope with discrimination and bias and microaggressions um, so they can live happy and fulfilling lives. So that's ultimately my goal and my, and my purpose. Awesome. Uh, and then uh, one of my last questions I like to ask every once in a while is, are you happy today? Am I happy today? I, I think I am. I'm able to talk to you today and talk on this platform. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so I, if I can make you happy, that makes me happy. Um, Ryan, uh, where can the listeners find you? Um, you know, um, whatever you want to plug, go for it. Uh, let's, let them know where they can find you and get in touch with you. Definitely. So you can first get in touch with me on my website. Uh, www.rcwarnerconsulting.com. Um, you can also just Google my name, Dr. Ryan C. Warner. Uh, my information should come up. Um, you can also send me an email if you have any additional questions at rcwarnerconsulting at gmail.com. And where are you based? Um, so I'm currently in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I'm originally from the Chicagoland area. Have you ever been to Walter White's house? I have not, but I uh, actually didn't start watching Breaking Bad until I moved here. So okay, all right, yeah. So now, <laughs> uh, but uh, listen, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I feel weird not calling you doctor. I'll just be honest. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for coming and spent uh, taking some time out. I'm sure of your super busy schedule. And then uh, if I'm ever in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'm gonna come lay on that couch and uh, we'll have we'll have a session ourselves in terms of what's going on in this brain of mine. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks so much. All right, man. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Stay safe out there. um, And peace and love to you and your family, man. Yeah, you too. Thanks again.